If you're joining us here tonight, very warm welcome. And just to bring you up to speed as to where we are, we feel God challenging us this year to come back to Scripture. And so I want to encourage you, how's it going reading your Bibles? I want to spur you on. If that's all new to you, I want to ask, uh, I'm hoping tonight you'll be persuaded to give yourself to this amazing book. It's a special book. It's inspired by God. Uh, It's something that you can build your life on, as we will see tonight. And uh, we've been saying that if you will read this book, it will tell you two things. That's really, there are only two options in who or how you can live your life. What is your authority? Either it is God, and it comes through His Word, or contemporary culture, in which you choose as massive consequences. And um, we said also that if you read this book, it will do something for you. It will pull you up into a much bigger picture for your life. And friends, tonight, what God's Word offers our culture, it is vital. We need a bigger picture in which to live our lives. You see, when you listen to social media and you listen to what's going through Netflix and all the stuff that's being pumped through our eardrums, um, you will hear that really contemporary culture says the way that we need to order our life or the authority for our life is this, is whatever feels good for me is right. That's how I'm to live. Whatever feels good for me is right. And whatever feels good for you is right for you, but don't put that on me. I am my highest authority, okay? But we've been saying last week, and again, I want to show you this week, is that in actual fact, it's a very unstable way to live your life. Because what do you know about how you're going to feel about something tomorrow? I mean, I wake up in the morning, and my little girl says to me, Daddy, I want crunch lots but I said to her, but yesterday you wanted oats. So I made crunch lots for her in the next morning, and then she says, no, no, I want muesli and yogurt. She feels different all the time. And friends, if you're going to lead with your feelings, it's going to lead you down a path of real instability because your feelings change, not so? Sometimes I feel strongly about something, I wake up in the morning, I don't feel so strongly about it anymore. And I want to say to you today is that These feelings, they're changeable. I mean, the great theologian Katy Perry said, you're hot, then you're cold. You're in, then you're out. You're up, then you're down. I mean, she she basically explained our contemporary culture made a fat load of money from it. And she's right. She's right. But I want you to understand something tonight. I don't want you to think that emotions are bad. Please. You see, when I say we don't think, in other words, truth is what we feel. It's not based on fact. I would forgive you if you misunderstood me to say, hey, we're all meant to be robots as followers of God. Emotions are bad. No, no, no. The psalm we're going to read tonight tells us that emotions are a gift from God. And emotions make life exciting, not so? I mean, I I could tell you some stories about some of the highs of my life. I'm so grateful. I also, emotion brings meaning. I can tell you some stories of how I was so moved by God, by God amazing works of art and emotions are the things that God gives us to make life alive to us. But I want to say to you, these Psalms that tell us about these raw emotions, they tell us something else. It is that we are never to let our emotions take the lead in our life. That these wonderful gifts of emotion in our life is actually meant to be harnessed. And when emotions work in the correct way, in the way God designed them, it is powerful, my friend. It is powerful. And so 
tonight, as we looked at this Psalm 3, it's an unusual space. You know, if, if you just start reading your Bible and you let Scripture take the lead of how it comes at you, you read Psalm 1 and it's this massive, glorious psalm. Of, psalm 2 is even bigger. And then suddenly you get to this Psalm 3 and, and David's crying his heart out. He's desperate. He's a man in trouble. And if, if you just let Scripture come to you, as it, you ask the question, What's going on here? You went from this grandeur, this wonderful psalm, these psalms of triumph, to this song, psalm of trouble. And friends, today, I want to show you how this great big picture we've been talking about that God wants to pull us up in and to live our lives in, as Scripture gives us, it will be tested. And it will be tested very quickly by something called trouble in your life. You might be having a Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 experience, but tomorrow you'll be having a Psalm 3. It's not long before what you believe will be tested and tried and how you choose to respond and how you live your life it will be tested by trouble. And uh, I want to give credit to a man that has been remarkably insightful in this psalm. His name is Tim Keller. I highly recommend him. And I give him credit for a lot of just shaping the content and the thinking um, around the psalm. I I have been profoundly um, affected by his, his writing on this. And uh, friends, I want to point out to you that David, when we come to the psalm, it's my first point, is in a lot of trouble tonight. You mustn't miss the little titles that you see. They are editorials. They are put in a bit later. But they clearly are testified to through the content of the psalm. Is that this is a Psalm 3 where David's in a lot of trouble. And I want to just explain to you how desperately he is in trouble tonight. Now, this is the David that killed Goliath, right? Do you all know the story? If you don't, it's a great story to read. It's a true story. But what happened is this. At the heart of his wonderful kingship, he was so successful. He was sitting, standing on his balcony, and he saw a very, very beautiful naked lady called Bathsheba. And instead of doing what he knows to be right in his head, he followed what felt good in the moment, and he kept looking. And one thing led to the next, and he summoned this lady into his bedchamber, and he slept with her. But the problem was this, was that Bathsheba was a married woman. And he thought everything was fine until about a month later when she missed her period, she sent a message to David, said, guys, we're in trouble. David, I've got your baby. My, son, my husband, Uriah, he's out fighting in your army in the front line. He hasn't been around for more than a month. And there's going to be some questions being asked. And so what David did was he decided to do things again according to his feeling. He should have, he knew what was right was to come up and confess. But he didn't feel good. He didn't want that humiliation. So he tries to sell out a plan. So he tries to get Uriah to come back. And what happens is he, he's hoping that when Uriah is summoned back from the front line, he's going to sleep with his wife. Problem solved. Except this guy, he's got such a tender conscience, Uriah. He doesn't want to let down his buddies on the front line who don't get to sleep with their wives because they're fighting Israel's enemies. And so he won't do it. So then what David does is, how is this? He sends a note back with Uriah with his own death sentence in his hand. And he tells Joab, the leader of the army, he says, when you put this guy in the most a difficult area, and when he's close to that wall, and those archers are shooting, you remove his... Uh, his uh, his armor bearers, his, his fellow buddies, and he's successful in his plans, David. Uriah gets killed. He gets murdered. And David's thinking, I think, is this. Is he's thinking, well, if I can get the husband out of the picture, he can't deny the fact that he didn't sleep with Bathsheba and everything will be fine. He'll look like the hero. He'll, cut, he'll marry the widow. And then he'll look after the baby and no one will be the wiser. But you see, my friends, God loves David far too much to let him get away with it. And so what he does is he sends an amazing man called Nathan the prophet. 
And Nathan tells him a story, and David gets angry about this guy that wrongs his, his, his neighbor. And he says, David, you're the guy. You're the one who sinned. And uh, Nathan says, praise the Lord. And David repents. He says, God's received your repentance. He forgives you, but the sword is never going to leave your family. You took that guy's life by the sword. I'm going to let you experience the same trouble because of that sin. And what happens is from that moment, it is a, it is a, uh, it is a gut-wrenching family drama of how David's oldest son, Amnon, then rapes his half-sister, Tamar. And Tamar's brother, by the same mother, uh, waits. His name is Absalom. And when he gets his opportunity, he murders Amnon. And through all of this, David does nothing. He doesn't rebuke his son Amnon. He lets Absalom flee, and he, Absalom's in exile, and then he relents. He lets Absalom come back. And what this guy is, his own son, his own son that he's just been merciful towards, over four years plots David's own coup, plots his own coup against David, his own father. And the whole of the nation, it is literally all of the people of Israel turn to Absalom and want him to be their king. And so what happens is this psalm is written when David's on the, on the run from Jerusalem, his capital. And it's probably at night. He's running with his household and a, f- a group of few loyal soldiers. And he's running. He's running for that river Jordan, which is east of Jerusalem. He's got to get over that river. And he's running for his life because his own son is hunting him. And when he gets to the River Jordan, if you read the text, he collapses on the River Jordan and he's exhausted. And, and this is probably where he wrote the psalm of, of crying out of prayer to the Lord. And let's read it together tonight from verse 1. O Yahweh, Lord of the capital in capitals, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O oh Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to Yahweh, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord Yahweh sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies in the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Friends, tonight I've entitled this psalm, Facing Fear with the Bigger Picture. And there's two kinds of fears you will face in your life, and it comes through in this psalm. You can pop it over to the next one. The first is, is a good kind of fear. And that's when you have to protect something good in your life. So if you step into a highway and there's a car coming, it's good to protect your life, right? Then you kick, your autonomic nervous system kicks in, the adrenaline starts pumping, it focuses you, produces a constructive response, and you jump out of the road in order to preserve your life. And once that danger has passed, that sympathetic nervous system switches off, and there's, oh, there's relief. That's a good kind of fear, right? And that's what David is facing here. It's, it's, it's a threat against his physical safety in verse 1. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. He's on the run, and he's running to the River Jordan, and he's got that adrenaline pumping. He's got to get over that river. He knows he's got to make it. And when they get there and they cross the river, he collapses. It's done. He's relief. But there's a second, and it's a, a much greater threat to David's well-being, and it's a much more subtle and deeper space of fear. 
and it's called anxiety. Now, I know I'm talking to people in a room here that knows what it's like to be anxious. And I'm a pharmacist. I've made a lot of money for other people through, <laughs> through, through our generation's anxiety. It's documented fact. We have the highest recorded rate or level of anxiety and anxiety disorders in history. And friends, this anxiety, it is a much more dangerous kind of fear because instead of it being specified or specific against a certain danger, it's a sort of generalized, diffuse, gnawing kind of fear at one's life. And it is very dangerous because instead of it producing that constructive response that good fear does, it's actually paralyzing. The more you are anxious, the less you are able to focus, the less you are able to think, the less you are able to act. And where does this anxiety come from? Unlike this good fear, which is protecting your physical safety, anxiety is a fear about something else. It is when you feel yourself, in inverted commas, under threat, when you feel your identity, who you are as a person, where you find your security, where you find your sense of control, when that's under threat, that, my friend, is when you start to feel anxious. And I'm going to explain it in just a moment. But the two are very different, and the two are profound. And when these guys, and they are rumors, you've got to know in Israel, guys, they're talking. And they're saying, we've seen this before, this king. This king, his predecessor, King Saul, man, God abandoned him. He left him. He chucked him out from the kingship. And it's the same thing happened to David. Look, the whole of the nation of Israel has turned against him. And, and David says, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. That hurt more than the first, my friend. Because David's security as king and David's security as a human being depended on the fact that God needed to be with him. And everyone was saying he wasn't. And that was where this anxious cry rises up in David. And he is just beside himself when he gets to the Jordan. And there are four ways David fights this fear, particularly this anxiety tonight. And I want to help those of you who struggle with this, like myself, get handles from God's word on how to face this emotion of fear and overcome it. Well, the first thing before I dive into these four amazing steps that David offers us here tonight is the word but. Did you see that? Now, if you just stop, I'll tell you, culture will tell you, just stop at verse one and two. Just feel your way through this thing. And friends, if that's how you're going to respond to your fear, if you are just going to be passive, I tell you, it will consume you. It doesn't go away by itself. And what happens here is David has to take a step forward against his fear. He has to say, but, but that's his big picture moment. You see, there's, there's three ways you can deal with emotion. You can suppress them. That's what religiosity will tell you to do. You can vent them. That, that's what culture will tell you to do. Both don't help. But there's a third way that you can do that David does, is you can pray through your emotions. And friends, this is what he does. He brings his anxiety before God, and he refuses to be passive. He takes, he says, but... But you are Lord. And you are, maybe this is the breakthrough moment for you tonight, is that you're needing to push back against what you feel with this bigger picture of what you know to be true in God. He's hanging his, his, his anxiety on bigger hooks than just his experience. And he does it like this. The first thing that we need to do when we are to fight this fear of anxiety in our lives, it is to make the choice. Do you notice that David says this? 
you, but you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me. How does a shield work, guys? Do you wear your shield in your bedroom? No, you wear it on the battlefield, right? A shield is designed to be used in the midst of trouble. And if there ever was a scripture that proved that a Christian who follows Jesus can experience hard times in their life, it's this, not so. To say that God is a shield about you is saying that God is not promising you the absence of trouble in your life. What he is promising you is right in the very midst of it, right when that enemy is spitting in your face and there are hordes against you, God is saying, I'm going to be with you. Now, friends, this is profound because I want to say there's a false gospel being preached. I don't think it's much around here, praise God, but I want to say it is out there that says the favor of God, the shielding of God is a relationship that is worry-free. Relationships are worry-free in your life. You have perfect health, perfect wealth, perfect happiness. What rubbish because God has to be a shield, and the shield is for the midst of trouble, my friends. And I want to say to you, being a Christian is hard. It's hard because your faithfulness to your general, Jesus, can lead you into difficult circumstances. And the choice you have to make is a shield only works as you are moving forward towards the enemy. If you turn around and you run and you disobey your general, you're done for. That's the point. Is kind of saying through David to us tonight, friends, you only really have two choices when you are facing up to your fear. Is are you going to be obedient to your general or are you going to be the guy that turns around, runs away, but then gets stabbed in the back and fall? And I want to say to you tonight, I, I have seen it over and over again in my own life and your life. We have to make tough decisions because of obedience to Jesus. Some of us here are waiting for a marriage partner and are embracing difficult life circumstances because you don't want to marry anybody that doesn't share the yoke of Christ. Sometimes businessmen have to make difficult decisions. Here, guys, offering a dodgy tender with a back deal. Just give me this cash and I will give you what you want. And they say, no, I want to say to you guys, obedience to Jesus is hard. It's hard. But David says, what choice do you have? Because a shield only works as you move forward, as you move forward in God, as you put him before you and say, this is the man I'm following. This is my general. He's going to be a shield about me as I obey him. And so today, my friends, this shield, it is God being in the very midst of trouble. And I, and I want to put it to you tonight. I'm going to make my case. I want you to stay with me tonight. Is if God, in your obedience is leading you into trouble, it's good for you. I'll say it again, because I had to say it to my like, really? Like, just got to like, latch that in there, Matt. If God, if you are in trouble tonight because of obedience to Jesus, it's good for you. It's good for you. Because what God is training you now, if there is any hurt or pain now, it will save you, my friend, from much greater hurt and pain later. I don't have time to make my case from Jesus' life, but I will say this. The very first thing after his glorious baptism in Matthew 3 is Matthew 4. What is the Spirit leading me into? Into trouble. To be tempted. And that training ground was the, the platform for his entire ministry. Jesus was able to enjoy the fruits of obedience to God and the blessing of God's hand on his life because he was determined to obey. And friends, tonight... I want to appeal to you. Are you at the crossroads of what you're going to choose in your life? The shield only works if you move forward. And whatever is happening because of your obedience to Jesus, I promise you, I promise you, it will work out for the good. 
Why can I say that? It's because, and again, I'm, I'm shamelessly stealing from Tim Keller in this point, is to relocate your glory. That's the second one here. Guys, God is not interested so much in our comfort externally because he's more interested in where we are finding our comfort in him. Let me explain it to you like this. David says this, not only is God a shield about me, he's also my glory and the lifter of my head. And what does David mean by my glory? He's learned something here in his life is he's learned that there are different areas where we can look for glory in this life. And what is, what is, what is glory? What, what, what is it we, where do we look to for glory? It is this. It is anything in this life that makes us feel significant, makes us feel secure, and gives us a sense of identity. That's what glory is. It's what we glory in. It's those things that are important to us. And friends, we glory as human beings in things that are good. They're good. So, for instance, a very common thing that we glory in as human beings are other people. Now, being around other people's good. You are not designed to be a hermit, my friend. You are designed to be in close community. But what happens is this, is when that relationship of being close to someone becomes that person becoming a source of your glory, that's where we fall into trouble. And the trouble is this, is when we look to that person to affirm us, to approve us, and their approval on, their li- on our lives become, uh, becomes our source of glory. We're in trouble because that can change at any moment. And it happens. You say something stupid in the classroom and everyone laughs at you. You get anxious. Do you know why? Because you feel like you've just lost the respect of your classmates. When you are at work, you make a stupid mistake and you start to be, maybe, and it's a public mistake. I've made a few of those. I'll tell you that as a pharmacist. And suddenly, what's rocked in your world is your source of security because you want to be a pharmacist. Everyone praises and claps. That's a brilliant pharmacist. He's so intellectual. He's so thorough. He never makes mistakes. When you make the mistake, suddenly you start to be anxious. Why is that? Because you worry what everybody else thinks about you. Or what about this? Maybe it is your ability. They're all interconnected. Maybe it is the fact that you're really good at your job. And when you start to operate in your job, man, you just feel so successful. There's a problem, don't worry, I'm going to sort it out. And for a while, business can be good, my friend. You can start to really operate in a great level, and people are applauding you. Yeah, but you know what will happen? Is God loves you too much to let you alone in that space, and he will bring trouble to shake it. He will. And it could be that you see a falling bottom line economic situation. No matter what you do, you are so stressed at night. You cannot think straight because you're trying to, how do I rescue this? How do I do this? How do I? There is this anxiety around an overplay of our ability. And ability is good. Responsibility is good. But when you overplay that, my friend, what starts to happen is you start to get anxious because that can change just like that. You are dealing with people that have their own minds. No matter how much you try and serve them, no matter how much you try and love them, they will do their own thing. No matter how much you try and be the perfect boss and take responsibility for everything, you will never meet. You will never be God to those guys. And there will be things that will start to happen that will make you anxious because you start to realize you can't fix everything. You can't be everything to everybody. Even as a parent, I want to say to your parents tonight, please be careful of this. I said in my own life is if you think that that child is going to be a, a, a source of your glory, in other words, that child's behavior is going to be the reflection of your brilliance as a father and mother. Good luck. There's only two things that are going to happen. One is bitter disappointment. Bitter disappointment. Two is it will break that relationship. Do you know why? 
said to Marina the other day, I had such a, it hit me in the stomach because I realized, I don't want my child to live under the expectation that she has to be the source of my glory. It will break that child. All they will feel is that there is this expectation that I've got a need. I can't quite articulate it, but I know when I'm not. Friends, these things are good. You look at marriage. You look at money. There's nothing wrong with having money, but if that is where your source of glory is put, God will shake it just like David because he loves you. Because he loves you. And he will do it by leading you into trouble, my friends. And anxiety tonight, you've got to know, is not an enemy per se. If you are passive against it, then it is. But it is actually just smoke that leads you to the fire. And it tells you there is where I'm looking for my glory. And, you know, I, I, I chatted to a friend this week. He is in ministry. He said to me, Matt, I'm working through such a difficult season. And I was like, oh, you know, you know you just, I'm so sorry. You know, he says, no, it's the best thing that's happened to me because I know I can't fix it. I walked away going, there's a man that understands where his glory lies. What could David build his identity on tonight? Could it be his kingship? He was a failure. Could it be his fathering? He was a failure. Could it be his moral ability? Was a failure. Could it be his power? He's lost his crown temporarily. David could build nothing in his life. He could find no glory anywhere else. Ah, but except in God. You see, David realized, and this is where his glory had to come from, he had to get it from a God who never changes. The problem is with money, with reputation, with, with people, all these, they change. They like, they like the wind. They change direction, and you've got no control over it. Oh, but we were designed to find our glory in something else, in a God who was never, ever changing, who is perfect and eternal in all of his ways. That is the safe ground, my friend, on which David could rest and say, I'm at peace. Because David realized it was not the approval of others that mattered. It was whether or not he had the approval of God. It was not that serving other people. It's wonderful to serve other people. It wasn't the fact that he got to serve them as king. It was that he got to serve God. It wasn't the love of his people. He didn't have the love of his people. He was being rejected categorically by the vast majority of the nation. It was the fact that he had the love of God. Friends, it was not what they were saying about him. It was what was God was saying about him that mattered. David had found a safe hiding place that could look at these enemies and say, I am unmoved. Because God had given him a sense of his identity, not in these shifting and changing things, but in his very person, God himself. And it is the most beautiful thing. You know, the more I look at this, saying, God is my glory and the lifter of my head. Do you know what lifter of your head means? There's there's two ways you can lift your head. The first is by yourself, right? And everyone just thinks that guy is so arrogant. You don't see the queen doing this. She gives you the royal wave. Deportment, my dear, deportment. But when you are down and your head is just sitting like this, well done, our good and faithful servant. You do this and say, hey, I'm with you. I love you. I've got you. I'm backing you. Keep going. Come, keep going. David's getting that from God. He's getting it from God. And this man, 
if you had to ask yourself the question, how could this man get that from God? He's a murderer. He's an adulterer. He's a terrible father. And he's not a very successful king at this moment. And yet, he can say, God is lifting my head. He can say, here I am, and I'm experiencing a closeness and approval of God saying, hey, I'm with you, buddy. I've got you. You're not going anywhere because I'm with you. I'm your shield. Let me tell you, David knows that when he's cried out to God in that desperation of joy, where does God answer him from? The next one is this. Where does God answer him? He answers him from his holy hill, the hill which the tabernacle, that tent with the Ark of the Covenant inside, it is the place of sacrifice. He's not answering David from his throne in Jerusalem. Well, that's an abject failure. If it was answering David through his performance as a king, if it was answering through the, 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 the bedrooms of his children, it would have been a disaster. No, no. God is dealing with David, not through the basis of his performance. He's dealing from, him with his, from his holy hill. And David knows, my friend, if it was based on his performance, he's a dunner. He's a goner. I've never said done in my life before, but it's a new word, and I like it. <laughs> Wordsmith. There we go. Friends, tonight, David knows God is dealing with him based on a substitute. That there has been blood shed on that holy hill. That even an adulterer and a murderer can come into the presence of God and experience peace, acceptance, and forgiveness. Friends, this man, David, he is a man who knows what forgiveness is. He's tasted it, not because of his own brilliance or his own performance or his own life. God forbid. What kind of life does he have to show God? He's hanging by his teeth. He's saying, I'm obeying you. I'm going forward in this thing. I don't have anything to stand on except this. That my past has been covered and washed by that atoning sacrifice. And you are dealing with me not based on my righteousness, but praise God in the righteousness of another. And friends, we've got our own holy hill. It's called Golgotha, where the Son of God was bled and crucified for our sin. And when we come to God and we have got sin in our life that is so disgusting, nobody can tell me here that if we had to unzip your heart tonight, we wouldn't be shocked at the kind of things that you think about and the kind of things that you want in life. I tell you, God sees it all. But when we can come to this God and find forgiveness, not through our own performance, but through this glorious Son of God who deals with us, not according to our performance, but Golgotha, this death of Jesus Christ, that He can so look upon us and say, you're forgiven, you're cleansed, lift up your head, come on, go for it, I'm with you i'm with you all the way it is a miracle of grace my friends and there is no better place to find your rest in the knowledge that as you seek to go forward into those those fangs of the enemy you know god is not holding your sin against you that's been done that's been cleansed there's no space for lying down in self-pity there's no space for lying down in defeat david gets up oh it's the greatest thing he gets up god lifts his head come on my boy that's done we're going forward and i'm going with you christians make dumb decisions you're looking at one let's make it a bit bigger. human beings make dumb decisions my question to you tonight is, is your shield on the floor and you're lying there going, I'm out of the game? Or are you going to do what David did? He had every reason to quit. My friend, if I was David, honestly, I think I would be suicidal. I really would be. I'd be saying, what's the point of life? Everything that's precious to me is taken away. What is the point of even living? I'm just this has-been. I'm just this nobody. I've got nothing left to live for. David, David sees if he can pick himself up in the grace of God, can't you? 
If he can say, God will receive me, not based on my own righteousness, but a righteousness. Can't you, friends, today, I want you to feel that when the enemy starts to press in, to disqualify you, to put you aside, to say you're not worthy to run, you've dishonored your general, you can't pick up your shield anymore, I want to say to you, you do what David did. You look to God and you see he is the lifter of my head. You see that he is the one that has died. He's prepared the sacrifice to forgive you sin, to set you apart for him, to bring you into his closest space, to receive you, to say, don't bring that past up anymore. It's done. Don't remind me of your sin. I've forgotten it already. I am with you and I'm for you. And friends, when you know that you have God's approval and when you know he's on your side and when you know that he is working in the midst of trouble, not the absence, you can put your head down and you can sleep. And what a sleep it is. It is putting your head on that pillow and sleeping a peace, a sleep that is, it restores your soul. And he can say, huh, I woke for the Lord Yahweh sustained me. He has a sense of God's hand on his life. In the midst of his greatest crisis, he has his greatest comfort. Wow. And what will happen is this, my friend. If God is for you tonight, and I'll make my, my case one last time. If God is for you tonight, in other words, you are saying, I am going forward in obedience. Come what may you will find the very thing you fear has had its jaw broken and its teeth ripped out. That's what David says. You know, this morning at the 10, a couple stood up and said, we've been out of work for nine months. I said, do you know how hard it was for them? Every month those payments have to be made. Every month those jaws of financial distress are threatening to swallow them up. And they're obedient to God. They're trusting God. They're honoring Him with their finances, honoring with their faith. They're saying, we are going forward into this battle, and He is my shield. We're not going to run away and try and turn our backs on God and our faith. And blah, blah, blah. No, we're moving forward with our shield. Do you know what happens? After nine months, as the very jaws were about to close, they get work. And what was so threatening, and it was at the time, friends, when your fear comes up against God, it is toothless. It is toothless. It has a broken jaw. It can't even go, ever try to open your mouth? We have a dentist here will tell you. You can't if you've got a broken jaw. It's a toothless dragon. But friends, you will only discover that. And it happened to David. You know how Absalom died? It's a terrible way to die. It's actually to hang on a tree is to be cursed in Israel. That's why Jesus says, hang on a tree. He was cursed for our sin. He's there riding on his mule, and he has his beautiful, luscious, pantene hair. And as he gets under the tree, it gets stuck, and he sits there hanging, and he dies hanging on a tree. It is God's sign of utter rejection of Absalom and God's vindication of David. David stands amazed. Those jaws that were closing in around him, he just goes, I didn't even have to raise me. I didn't have to punch back. I didn't have to try and figure out how I'm going to crack his jaw. God did it for me. Because David pressed forward in obedience to him. And my last point is this. My last point is this, is to remember community, my friends. Isn't it amazing in David's angst? And maybe this is the next step for some of us here, a breakthrough moment. He could say, your blessing be on your people. In his fear. You know what happens when you are afraid and anxious? It will do this for you. Please listen very carefully. It's my final point. 
is it will cause you to isolate yourself. Anxiety will cause you to become introspective. And what that does is it amplifies and distorts what that fear really is. And the way to combat that, apart from all the other ways mentioned, is this. It is to remember your community. Sometimes the most powerful thing you can do is to love another person. And it just reorientates your whole life to what this fear really is. I see it on a Thursday every week. We go to a soup kitchen. We feed men that are broken through poverty. I tell you, none of us can leave that place without a sense of, I am so grateful for what God has done in my life. I've got food on the table. I've got a roof over my head. And I've got a family that loves me. I tell you what, guys. The power of this community, God's people, is to liberate us from introspection and self-centeredness. And tonight I'll ask you again, how is your life matching to others? Because you will find meaning there. You will find a life that really counts for something more than just your angst over your fears. You're saying, God has a plan for me. God has a purpose for me. And this is what David's saying. Is this Absalom going to be a better king than me? No. He's not ordained by God. I am. He knows that his purpose in being the leader of God's people stands and he gives himself to what he knows God has not released him from. I ask you, have you found your space in this community in loving those around you? It will be the greatest blessing of your life. God has a habit of helping us turn our heads from our bellies to him when we get to serve others.